continuing our sermon series through the Acts of the Apostles, or as we have said, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We are at the end of chapter 4 this morning. Um, My sermon title, once I get into my sermon, might not make a whole lot of sense, and that's because this is part one of two sermons on this particular passage, the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5. Um, So if you start wondering why the title doesn't make sense in light of what I'm preaching, it will make sense next week, I promise. I hope, Lord willing. Before we turn to God's holy and errant infallible word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send us now your Spirit, who breathed out this, your Word, that as your Word is read and proclaimed, that we would hear with joy what you have to say to us today, and that we would respond in faithful obedience to it. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Scripture reading comes from chapter 4, verses 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. It is written. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard it the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him after an interval of about three hours his wife came in not knowing what had happened and peter said to her tell me whether you sold the land for so much and she said yes for so much but peter said to her how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the lord Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear 
came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There might be more than one aspect of this passage that makes us uncomfortable. Some passages might sneak up on us, bringing conviction of sin and prodding us in sensitive areas only after we really plumb the depths of the passage. The Beatitudes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount have this sort of effect. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They sound like such nice words, comforting words, hope-filled words, and indeed they were spoken as promises of blessing. But in order to understand whether or not they actually apply to us, we must understand them to say that only those who acknowledge their utter helplessness before God, who understand the enormity of the debt due to their sin and their complete inability to repay it, who hate their sin and mourn over it, who turn to the Lord, standing before him as totally unworthy and understanding him to be their only source of hope and salvation. It is only they who will inherit God's kingdom and be comforted. And when we understand these things, rather than these beatitudes being some sort of feel-good form of positive thinking, we might be faced with the problem of our pride and brought low. But this passage from Acts is not one of those that sneaks up on you. It is one of those passages that hits us squarely in the nose from the outset, seeming to run roughshod right over us. And what is it about this passage that is the cause of our uneasiness. Perhaps part of it is what this passage says or seems to say about how we handle our money. Money might be a sensitive issue for us. It might be something that we are very private about. And if it is, then we might consider asking ourselves why this is the case. Is there something we are trying to hide? Make no mistake, I think for all of us, living in this very individualistic, very self-centered, very wealth-focused United States, this passage will push us beyond our comfort zone. But first, we might be uncomfortable with what this passage seems to imply in terms of economic systems in general. Given the current state of where our nation seems to be headed, we might be tempted to avoid a passage like this. It perhaps grates on our already very sensitive nerve that many of us have. But we shouldn't shy away from it if we intend to submit ourselves to God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, which is the only authority for faith and obedience. This passage gives witness to some very important aspects and events in the life of the early church, which carry tremendous implications for the church today in the 21st century. We do not need to miss the principles given to us here in God's word. But in order for us to get at them, we must be careful first not to misinterpret the meaning of this text. For instance, we have to be careful about how we read verse 32 when it 
tells us that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. We know the simple reading of this verse and what it seems to encourage, and we don't like it one bit. But as many as want to support socialism or communism, it very simply and very clearly does not support those things. We always have to be careful not to force an interpretation on a text to fit our political, social, or economic views, but this passage is not saying what we fear it might. All scripture must be read in context, both within the passage and within the whole of scripture, and this passage in no way points to a forced redistribution of wealth. Nor is it urging the elimination of private property. We have already stated this when we looked at Acts 2. But I want to reiterate that at the outset this morning. The church is not here telling anyone or forcing anyone in its fellowship to ascribe to the principle that what is yours is everyone's. In chapter 5, when Peter addresses Ananias about the property he sold, he asked him, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, Peter acknowledges that the property belonged to Ananias and Sapphira to do with as they wished. And Peter continues, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, Peter indicates to Ananias that he was under no obligation to give all of the money or even part of the money to the church. This was their own decision. The judgment then that comes to Ananias and Sapphira, which we will get to next Sunday, Lord willing, was not due to whether or not they were willing to sell their property and give the proceeds of the sale to the church. Further, It will be clear as we move throughout Acts, and the New Testament as a whole gives witness to this, that there is very clearly private ownership of private, there is clearly ownership of private property within the church community. It was not all treated as common property. In fact, Barnabas, who's lifted up as an example of faithfulness, seems to have come from a very wealthy family. We'll be told in Acts 12 that Barnabas' aunt, Mary, mother of John called Mark, Barnabas's cousin, personally owned a home that was large enough to accommodate many who gathered together there and were praying. Clearly then, this passage is not suggesting that there is no private property in the early church. There was. The Bible does not give support to socialism or communism. But before we breathe a collective sigh of relief, we have to take seriously what the text is saying. And Luke doesn't want us to miss this. We might have noticed that the passage very much resembles the passage at the end of chapter 2. At least I hope you picked up on that after we spent several weeks covering chapter 2. Luke is not absentmindedly repeating himself here. This is repetition for the sake of emphasis. Luke is telling us that this is what occurs when the Holy Spirit falls on and fills the people of God. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the followers of Jesus at Pentecost. And Luke describes for us in the verses that follow what effect the Holy Spirit has within the life of the church. Then 
again here in chapter 4, verse 31. We are told that the followers of Jesus were filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. And again, Luke immediately shares with us the effect of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And what happens? Verse 32. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, which could also be translated as one heart and mind. Great unity comes by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus had prayed for in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And again, later in the prayer, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And here at, after Pentecost, this prayer of Jesus is coming to reality. Not just the apostles have been unified, but all who have believed in Jesus through their word. And this was a unity forged by something more than a worldly like mindedness or having similar backgrounds or common interests and goals. No, this unity was much deeper than that and carried weightier implications. This unity was spirit-driven in a spirit-given unity. It was the mark of the true church, which is why the apostle Paul will insist on it being a norm for the Christian community life. This is why he says things like he does in Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony or like-mindedness with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians 4, 3, where Paul exhorts the church to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And of course, Philippians 2, where he encourages the church to be in full accord and of one mind. But we don't want to miss here in Acts that Luke tells us what this unity implies. It came with a practical outworking. And Luke lays this out for us in these verses. This practical outworking is a fellowship that includes a caring for one another's physical needs through the generous giving of material resources. So it wasn't that members of the early church were being forced to hand over their belongings. They weren't being coerced in any way. Oneness of heart and mind meant that they were one in every way. Now, we might think of unity simply as worshiping the same God or being in agreement on essential doctrines or sharing a common purpose or mission, but it meant a lot more than that to the early church. Fellowship with one another, or koinonia in the Greek, meant coming into relationship with 
one another in a way that there was transparency with one another and that there was a, a willingness and a desire to hold all things in common. It meant that they not only shared the same faith and worldview, they shared a common life together. They worshiped together. They studied God's word together. They prayed together. They shared meals together. And they also shared their possessions with one another. This might seem really unusual to us. But we should see that it would be entirely inconsistent if they didn't share their possessions with one another. How, how could they say we are one with one another, we share a common life together, but we hold our material possessions from the rest of our common life? We have no responsibility to care financially for one another. This would have created a false dichotomy as though the spiritual did not have implications for the material world. No, when they looked at one another, they did so with an attitude of sincere care and love for one another. They are showing us indeed that a community has been so loved by God that it desires to love each other in real practical ways. A community that has received an abundance of grace from God desires to be gracious to one another. This was a community that understood that God had not even withheld his own dearly beloved son, but had given him up to death for them in order that they might be redeemed from their sin and rescued from their just punishment. And so they gave themselves entirely, not just with their minds, not just with their souls, but entirely to God and his people in response. And not only did they understand what God had done for them in Jesus Christ, they also understood that everything that they possessed belonged first to God, who had made them stewards of these material possessions. Further, they understood that they belonged to their Lord Jesus Christ and by extension to one another, his body. And these things led them to view their possessions as not simply as their own, but also for the benefit of those in the community. It didn't mean that everyone renounced private ownership in favor of common ownership. It didn't mean that everyone went and sold everything that he had and gave it to the church. But it did mean that they didn't hold too tightly to their own possessions. They had done away with the attitude that their possession should take priority in their lives. No longer were they pursuing worldly possessions, but they came to value relationship with Jesus Christ and his people above material possessions. They came to view their possessions in light of not only their own needs and desires, but in light of the needs around them in the community. So if there was any need, then it was provided for by those who were able to give out of their abundance. And scripture gives witness that they even gave when needed sacrificially out of their poverty. But this particular passage indicates that this giving was done primarily by those who were large landowners or property owners who were selling these lands and homes from time to time as needs arose. Regardless, it was entirely voluntary. It was joyful. It was a generous sharing of material possessions. And it was birthed from and gave witness to their unity in Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And far from being like some welfare state where the poor become hopelessly dependent on the charity of the rich as the rich become puffed with pride at their superiority, Scripture gives witness throughout the New Testament that the church was a community in which everyone, everyone had gifts to offer. Some were material, others were not. But they were all sharing these gifts freely for the common good, for the upbuilding of the community in body, in spirit, growing together as equals in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters in the Lord, sinners redeemed by the free grace offered to them by God through the one all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We need to understand that this was a spirit-led and a spirit-empowered thing that was happening. Humans left to themselves are selfish and self-centered. Humans left to themselves will chase after their own needs and desires. They will do whatever benefits their own wants and wishes. So even though there might be some who look at this passage and say, look, the Bible supports socialism or communism. What Luke is describing here is not just a group of people who have in their own strength and volition decided to live together and share their goods out of the kindness of their own hearts. This isn't some hippie commune that is being described here. And Luke is certainly not encouraging an imposed government structure with forced redistribution of wealth. It just doesn't happen by human strength but only by a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. So what we are seeing here, as one commentator puts it, is an enterprise of divine character. This is something that is happening naturally, or supernaturally, rather, out of the working of the Holy Spirit in their midst. It's giving witness to God. The sharing of material resources is a particular sign of grace of God at work in this community. And it points to the fulfillment of what God's word tells us about his kingdom. As far back as Deuteronomy 15, we see God's covenant promise to his people that there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. The church is meant to serve as a demonstration and a foretaste on earth of the fulfillment of this promise. It is to give witness to the reality that God's kingdom has come in Jesus Christ and is yet still coming in its fullness. And it is for the sake of blessing God's people, yes, but more importantly, it is for the sake of God's glory being revealed in and through them. It was and still is a powerful source of witness to the outside world as those in the church love one another in radical ways. In the radical ways that Jesus taught them. Humbling themselves. Serving one another. Considering each other's needs before their own. This is why Jesus says that his people will be known by their love. It stands out in a world of greed and selfishness. We need to understand, though, that the early church wasn't attempting to set up some sort of utopian society. That was not their ambition. In fact, this passage makes clear that this holding all things in common is not simply for community, for the sake of community. Notice here that Luke mentions in the middle of this portrait of life within the 
early church, this seemingly out of place comment in verse 33 that the apostles were filled with great power and continued to give witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why does Luke seem to shift focus momentarily here away from what is happening within the community to say what is happening outside of the community? And this is the reason. It is a reminder that the primary task wasn't to create a nice community for themselves to enjoy. It was to be the church called out to go forth to give witness to Jesus Christ, boldly proclaiming the gospel, that Jesus Christ came in accordance with the scriptures, that he lived in perfect obedience, that he suffered and died a sacrificial death in accordance with the scriptures. And he was raised on the third day from the dead and ascended into heaven where he reigns in glory. This serves as a not-so-subtle reminder to us that any church that makes the church community an end of itself will ultimately die. We aren't called to build for ourselves a nice, comfortable, gated community with people who look and think like us where we can sit around and sing kumbaya. The reason that the church has been given great power is for the sake of giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is because the early church is faithful to this task that the church has great grace upon them. That the community is blessed by God and is growing in the Lord. There is a very clear message here to us that evangelism, the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the broader community, mustn't ever lose its place in the church. It isn't simply an optional program of the church. It is the reason the church exists. So as much as this passage challenges us about what we believe about unity and what unity in the body of Christ implies, as much as it challenges us to reshape our understanding of material possessions in accordance with God's word, as much as it challenges us to practice a sacrificial generosity, and an openness with our possessions that is radically countercultural in such a materialistic and individualistic society. We cannot miss what unity mustn't ever imply a failure to go out into the world to give witness to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. I think, I think unfortunately, we can look all around us and see churches striving to build community for the sake of community who spend their time and resources trying to create a place where members can feel comfortable and safe and inspired and encouraged. Churches build big, fancy, beautiful buildings, and then they set out to spend their days maintaining them, constantly busying themselves, coming up with new ideas to make their members feel more comfortable and safe and inspired and encouraged. A community like this is not reliant on the Holy Spirit to exist or to function. Nor is it a community that has its heart uniformly set on the mission God has given to it. And I pray that it never describes us here at Covenant. These types of communities are not only failing to live out their God-given callings, but they are dying. And they will die because this is not why the church exists. The church exists to worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to give witness to him, 
to make him known in all the earth, to invite the nations to come and bow down and worship the one true living God. The rest of our life together centers on these two things, worship and evangelism. This passage calls us to examine ourselves at this point. Do we have hearts unified in what God God calls us to? both in our relationships with one another and also in our relationship with the outside world? Are are we here just serving ourselves, seeking after our own interests, bettering ourselves, or are we here to demonstrate to the world that God's kingdom has come in Jesus Christ, both in our life together and in our being sent forth for something more? Are we here to show the world what reverence to God and obedience to him looks like? and what his spirit makes possible for those who place faith in Jesus Christ? Dearly beloved, here's the reality. We live in a culture that is desperate, desperate to realize a world in which there is equity and compassion, where people are valued and cared for, in which people who are impoverished are provided for by people who have plenty, where people are seen as equals. We see people foolishly scurrying after ideas like socialism and it worries us and it frustrates us. But I believe that there's a reason for this longing that's being expressed today. It isn't new, by the way. Many before have chased after it. The Greeks, for example, described and longed after a golden age in which all property was public. And Pythagoras is said to have practiced it with his disciples and have coined the expression, among friends, everything is common. Plato later incorporated this ideal in his vision of a utopian republic. Then Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote that the Essenes, whom we know as the Qumran community, quote, live the same kind of life as do those whom the Greeks call Pythagoreans. History has shown that there is a deeply embedded understanding that this is what it means to be a just and loving society. There's a reason for this. It's because it has a source beyond us. It has a source in the living God. He has set the definition for a good society and he has given us a desire to long after it. But people have rejected God. They've sought to form their own sort of society of social justice. And history has shown that it has been tried and has failed as many times as this humanist ideal has been attempted. Today, radicals in the Western world are seeking to overthrow society as we know it in the name of creating a society that is more just. Of course, their idea of social justice is based in the human imagination of power structures of oppression. In their system, there is no grace, only blame. In a demand to acknowledge supposed inherent guilt of those considered oppressors. There is no way to repent or find forgiveness. There is only a demand to pay retribution for wrongdoing. It isn't hard to see not only the folly of their ideas, but also the danger of their ideas. 
that their attempts amount to complete nonsense that will not resolve any injustice. It may indeed reshape power structures and redistribute wealth, but it will create a society of division, victimhood, anger, guilt, and vengeance in the process. It will be, simply put, anything but a utopia. And even as we can clearly see those things, I hope that we can with the same clarity see that God is what God has called us to. I hope that we can see that God has called us to model his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven through our common life together. Certainly, Luke understands that what he is describing is the ideal set forth by others, but with a major difference. Luke understands that this community doesn't come from imaginations or strength or goodness of men. It wasn't from Pythagoras or Plato, but it was from God, the God of Israel. It had been expressed in the Old Testament, and it had been illumined by the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, it was possible, at least in part, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we, dearly beloved, are called to live in a way that the world takes notice and finds attractive because they are longing for a community as this to be reality. God has given us this moment to point to a reality that men without him can only imagine in their minds to reveal what God makes possible in the power of the Spirit to demonstrate the goodness of God and the unity that comes by way of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're called to boldly proclaim why we are able to live in such unity. I hope that we don't miss this moment shying away from this vision that God has given to us because it has been so perverted by the world around us. It's our opportunity to show forth the love and grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to demonstrate that God has given us victory over sin and death, has freed us from the power of sin, which otherwise hinders us from living life together in community as God intends. So I encourage you to allow this passage to make you uncomfortable today. Allow it to poke and prod, to convict you and to transform you by the renewing of your minds. And may it shape us together evermore into the image of Jesus Christ. And to God be all the glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there are times when your word pierces our hearts and convicts us of our sin. In those moments, grant that we might not become hardened to your will for us. Humble us, we pray. Give us grace to repent and to turn to you to find fullness of life as you intend. And we pray that as we do, you would reconcile us to yourself and to one another that you would shape us ever more into your image, that you would restore in us what was lost in the fall, that you would help us to be a light in a dark world. May you receive all the glory. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe. Christian, in whom do you believe?